0: All right. Well, it's good to be with you today. I'm excited. I'm excited that you're here with us today and uh, we have been in a a series of conversations for a long time now. It feels like a couple months about this way of life that we all belong to here uh, called the church. The church, where does the church come from? Where does this concept come from? What, how does this form our, our communal identity? Not just our individual identity. You know, the Lord knows each of us individually. He ministered to us very beautifully this morning in, in very personal ways. But there's also a communalness that goes on here, an usness that's happening here. What's our communal mission and purpose? And getting this right is really crucial because literally the world around us suffers when we don't when we don't get this right, right? The world is a better place for the church knowing who it is. I believe that. So we've looked at a lot of different metaphors over the last few weeks that the scriptures use to describe the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, some other things. There's another image today that I want to look at that I'm very excited and eager to talk about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, now, this will involve a little bit of historical context. I know some of you love that, my fellow history nerds. Yeah! Others of you, I'm so sorry, if you'll just hang tight for 10 minutes or so, we'll get past this part, all right? But, but I need to, because there are some, what we're going to get into, uh, this is not just the, the easiest thing to follow. Uh, for, for me, I, I really had to like really kind of go and, and make sure I, under, I was, you know, connecting all my dots just right here. Um, there's some disparate concepts here that uh, I feel like we want to, uh, it would have been super easy, by the way, for the early church. Uh, we're going to look at some letters of Paul. Uh, it was super easy for them to get because it would have just been like part of the waters they swim in for us. We got like 2,000 years of distance. So for us, we kind of got to, we need some cultural translation. You know what I mean? So we got to put on our ancient ears. And um, so if you could sit tight for like twin. 10 minutes of some glorious diagrams and ancient quotes. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Um, Also, let me answer one question just kind of ahead of time that often folks might ask uh, after the end of the service. Um, Are we talking about this today because we're all doing something wrong and I need to fuss at y'all? Or is this like one of those things where we're talking about it because this is something actually we mostly get right uh, and we want to keep it that way? It's the second one. All right, so that's, it's kind of the second one, uh, and so we're going to be talking about things that are very integral to who we are. I mean, this is like DNA of Generations Church kind of stuff, and so I do think there's going to be some fresh stuff that'll be a really blessing, a to, to real blessing to some of you, uh, hopefully you didn't know before, um, and I also think this is good uh, for us to talk about. It sort of lets newcomers in, if you're kind of new to Generations, to let you know kind of the DNA of this church, what you're getting into here, so that's kind of what's happening here. So if today I sound like I'm fussing, it's not a you uh, because you're awesome. Okay, here we go. In Ephesians, let me just rattle off a few scriptures here real quick. In Ephesians 219, Paul says, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his what? Household. Uh, First Timothy, he says something. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in what? God's household. I wonder what the theme is today. Titus 1 7 says, Since an overseer manages God's household. Yep. And uh, 1 Peter 4 says, uh, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Now, to understand this image, this household, this word that keeps popping up, we need to joyfully spend about 10 minutes talking about this word, household, right? You see how I'm just sort of slipping. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, joyfully, right? reverse psychology. Because a household in Bible talk, it, it really did, uh, it was a very different thing. It functioned way differently than what we're used to. Uh, so we kind of have to put on our ancient years. So to get there, I want to take you back about 400 years before the New Testament. Okay? to a, There's a world famous guy, most of you have heard his name, by the name of Aristotle. Everybody heard of Aristotle? Greek philosopher. Interesting. The uh, ancient Greek uh, political philosophers were obsessed with this question, which was, "What is the ideal society?" They want—they're really concerned about what is the ideal society. Or for them, it was the city-state. That's kind of what they thought of. They didn't really think of nationhood. They thought of like a city-state. How does it function? How do the parts relate to each other in um, the ideal city-state? And then they said, you know what, that's too big of a question, so let's, let's look at something simpler. So they focused uh, instead on the smallest social unit that made up the ideal Greek city-state, and that was the household. Household. In the household, back then, you had a bunch of relationships going on that sort of mirror the dynamics that are going on in, a, in the ideal city-state. And so they said, well, let's look at the ideal household And then we'll like multiply that by a thousand and then we'll get the ideal society. Uh, That makes sense so far? Not enjoyable, but it makes sense. Okay, (laughs) yes. So here's something, here's what Aristotle says in one of his writings. He says, every household is part of a state. And these relationships are part of the household. And the excellence of the part must have regard to that of the whole. In other words, if you want to look at the whole society, you just need to look at the individual parts, the households. He goes on. Household management falls into departments corresponding to the parts of which the household is in turn composed. I know. And the household, in its perfect form, consists of slaves and freemen. Okay. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are, there's three relationships. Master-slave, husband-wife, father-children. We got that? All right. So a household in the Greek mind is not an American nuclear family, like we would think. Uh, You might have several nuclear families in the same household back then. And so, but the household consisted of one free man who owned all the property, his spouse, his children, his immediate family, his slaves, his artisans, uh, the extended family, and it could be 20 or 30 people we're talking about here in this whole little tiny household community, right? So when you hear household, don't think 1950s nuclear family, mom, dad, 2.4 kids and a dog, right? It's not that. He goes on. We ought to therefore examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships, the master-slave, the husband-wife, parents, children. Because the character of each of these relationships, he, they believed w- would show us what it means to have an ideal society. Here's something from uh, the Stoic philosopher, Arius Didymus, as uh, you probably have been reading a lot of this week. Um, He was a couple hundred years later. He said this, connected to the household is a pattern of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. The relationship, so here's how he goes. He says the relationship of parents to children is monarchic, right? In other words, where's my kids? They need to hear this. So the the parents should relate to their kids as as a king relates to a subject. That sounds... I wish. The parents, okay. So, and then it says the relationship of husbands to wives is aristocratic. What he means there is like in those days, men were considered a higher social class. Like they had their own places to go. You know, they hung out in their own little clubs. Um, anybody watch Dalton Abbey? Yeah, it's a good show. It's like upstairs, downstairs. That's kind of the way the men and women related to each other. And so that's the way the household should run and the ideal society should run. And then he says the way children should relate to each other is just democratic, right? It's just, and if you have kids, it's just mob rule, right? It's just whoever can beat up the other one. So this is really exciting stuff, I know. And I know you're thinking, if this is exciting to you, Scott, you really need to get out more. And I have no argument with you there. That is probably true. All right. Here's a, here's a chart which is even more riveting. The household owner is called the paterfamilias. Paterfamilias, literally dad family, family dad. This guy, he's the one, this is the one who ruled the roost, okay? So uh, it was the paterfamilias, the father... Every other member of the household defined themselves by, you defined yourself by that guy. So your identity, your your status, your reputation in town was all dependent and attached to the head of the house. His reputation was your reputation, right? And so the paterfamilias had basically, he had the power of life and death over everyone else in the the household. And so he relates to his wife as somebody from a, a lower social class. He relates to his children as a king, relates to his subjects. And he would relate to his slaves as an owner relates to property. Okay. And in the Roman conception, and man this gets really ridiculous. I'm sorry to even say this, but it was literally what they thought. They they the only full human, fully human person was a free man who owned property. That was the only real, full human person—a free person, who, a free man who owned property. Everyone else is either partially human, or potentially human, or non-human. Um, so, fully human men—they were self-determining; they, you know, had their own destiny in their hands. Everybody else was determined. Everybody else's destiny is determined by someone else. So, women were considered partially human uh, because they had not yet developed full cognitive abilities. Sorry, ladies. Um, they just—and I kid you not—this is what they said. And therefore they needed to be ruled by men because they just didn't have all the, you know, the right little parts. Um, It's awesome. This is why we don't uh, follow the gospel of Aristotle today. Praise the Lord. Male children were considered potential full humans. Someday they might be good to be full humans. Female children were considered potential partial humans. Uh, and so the ancients considered this household to be the whole unit. This was the unit with the household owner, the paterfamilias at the top, and the job of every other relationship in the household was to bring the household owner glory and honor. That was the job. I mean, that's why you were there is to bring him honor. Everything you did reflected on him, to bring him honor and glory, advance his social standing, which in turn would advance your social standing, right? You with me? Okay. You guys are amazing. Uh, that's pretty much the background history. So you, you got through it, okay? That we needed to have to build our case today. Here we go. Now, into this, the Apostle Paul does something amazing. He does something fascinating. And it's, to me, it's just fascinating to see how he, he talks to the churches, to, to study how he relates to his culture. Remember, none of this is happening in a vacuum, Paul lives in a certain time and place. The churches are in a certain time and place. And there are times when you and I, you ever read the scriptures and you thought to yourself, oh, Paul, why didn't you just overturn the institution of slavery instantly? Have you ever thought that? I have. Yeah, like why, why didn't you, why, I mean, why, why, you know, all this, be vague about it. And what we realize, of course, if we look at the history of the reality of it, is it would have stopped, number one, it would have stopped the Christian movement in its tracks because uh, any threat to the social order was just crushed by Rome instantly. And so there are some things that uh, there just had to be changes. Changes to a culture uh, have to evolve gradually, had to evolve gradually as, as the human heart is ready for the change. Isn't that true? We see that today. As the human heart is ready for change. We're like, okay, you know, we get drug along Finally. And a lot of scripture we see, we can look at it in hindsight and we can see God, he, he's playing a long game, right? He's playing a long game. And so sometimes there are things that don't happen instantly the way we, we wish they had been just spelled out really quickly in scripture. God plays a long game. And this is so important, guys. This is slightly off topic from today, but uh, it's worth repeating. Again, it's kind of like DNA of this church type stuff. When you read scripture, keep this in mind. Paul is writing letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing these letters to the churches. And these churches do not exist in a timeless void out in space somewhere. He's not sending it by email, right? These are churches that are real. They're they're not lost in the vacuum. He is not in the vacuum of all time and space. He is writing to 2,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern Roman citizens, everybody he's writing to is a Roman citizen, right, who, who own slaves, who treat their wives like children, and have only just come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everybody he's talking to is a new Christian. I mean, think about that. There's nobody in the church who was like, oh yeah, my grandpa was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. No, no, no. His church is all new Christians who just were like Roman citizens, who just discovered Jesus. Jesus has saved them from their sins. And they've just discovered this this God of the universe desires a relationship with me. And there's this hint that like this is going to change everything. But they are just in the infancy of figuring all this stuff out. And and so uh, Paul takes all this into account. You know, I think about like, think about a, a little baby, a little newborn, beautiful baby. Does that baby have visibly all the traits that that baby's going to have when it's grown? No, right? They're kind of funny looking, but the DNA is there, right? Oh, the blueprint of all that is their destiny is right there inside them. I think of the churches this way in many ways. So Paul takes this into account. And so when he's writing, he's like, okay, guys, I I know you can't conceive hardly of this kingdom where there's no, you know, idea of hierarchical separation between men and women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. So I'm going to speak slowly and use small words, right? This is kind of the way Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is having to speak. And it's why... Sometimes, you know, when folks point to scripture and say, you know, if they point to something and tell you, well, scripture says uh, wives are to submit to husbands and husbands don't have to, you could say, okay, well, well great. Uh, it also says masters treat your slaves well and slaves obey your masters. How are you doing at that? And then it probably will get as awkward as it feels right now, right? Because yeah, yeah. Be- be- why? Because this is a snapshot in time. Am I right? This, this is a time they could not conceive of slavery as evil as we know it today. When women were not even fully thought, as, thought of as fully human. Right? And so we're getting a glimpse. The beautiful thing here is we're getting a glimpse of what the gospel looks like when it's injected into Greco-Roman culture of the ancient Near East. Right? So I've said it before. And, many, and it's kind of one of those things where... Some of the things that we read, they're descriptive. They're not necessarily prescriptive, meaning it's a description of a real miracle taking place in Greco-Roman society. It's not a prescription for how households are supposed to run today, right? Just like, uh, how many of you remember a couple years ago, we looked at the story of uh, Abraham and God and this beautiful scene where God, I mean, God shows up in ancient Mesopotamia and God and Abraham cut a covenant together. They cut up a bunch of animals and then they walk between them beautiful picture not a prescription of how your morning devotionals should look right absolutely right because you will go to jail Um, so what Paul is doing is really really what he's doing is really brilliant here he introduces gospel dynamics into first century cultural settings and he's using a familiar picture that everybody was familiar with it's called the household codes These Greco-Roman household codes had been around for 400 years. Everybody understood the household codes. And he's using, it was very familiar to them, and he's using it to paint an unfamiliar revolutionary picture of kingdom relationships. Right? Um, Now, I'm not making all this up. There's some great scholars that uh, I, I... I would recommend if you're interested in this sort of thing, Timothy Gombas, he's uh, super smart about all this. Uh, Book by David Balch. uh, Gombas, G-O-M-B-I-S, Balch, B-A-L-C-H. They're they're super, super good. Not easy reading. Um, It's almost impossible if the kids are screaming uh, to understand the page without reading it three times like I have to. Um, But Paul does this everywhere. In two places we're going to see in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul uses these Greco-Roman household codes uh, the cultural norms of a fallen world, a pagan society. He lives in this pagan society, uh, the secular society, but he's going to use these ideas to make a really fascinating point. I think about the time. Do you remember when Paul was in Greece? He went to Mars Hill in Athens, and he talked to the Athenians. And he goes to the little the little place where they all gather, and they you know they uh, debate, and they it's filled with idols to the all these statues to all these different gods. And Paul walks in and he compliments the Athenians on their piety. Wow, you guys are really into gods. Uh, you know, okay. And uh, I see, you know, you have an unknown god over here. Let me, let me tell you about him. And Paul even quotes one of their pagan poets. Um, and for Paul, he's not compromising. He's not pandering, right? We wouldn't say, oh, well, Paul. Yeah, we just needed to take a stand, right? I don't know. Paul's not compromised. He's not pandering. It's a rhetorical weapon that he wields to persuade. And so what we're about to see here is that Paul uses these three relationships that Aristotle told us about 400 years ago to make a larger point. And really what we're going to find out is that it's not really about how home lives should look at all, but how the church should look because this is Paul's passion. Okay. Again, uh, keep in mind these household codes that we're reading about, they're not addressing what we would call the nuclear... Family, their point wasn't really about households at all. Even the ancients, the Greeks, what they were concerned with was really how the whole city should run. The the kind of dynamics that exist there is super important for us to understand. Absolutely inappropriate for us to derive modern Western nuclear family roles and rules from ancient pagan Roman household codes. Could we maybe agree on that? But Paul is borrowing in his argument To make a point about relationships in the church. Okay, let's look at some. Some of you are like, I I don't know if you're right, Scott. That's cool. Here we go. Colossians. Let's see if any of this language is familiar to us. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. That is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. And everything for this pleases the Lord. We'll skip verse 21. No, okay, we'll read it. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Too late. <laughs> slaves. And, and here in this case, this word would in, also include servants, employees, and that sort of thing. But it also included slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything. And do, not, do, do it not only when their eyes are on you and carry their fa- favor forward. But with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord... Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair, because you have a master in heaven. Oh my goodness. Okay, so what is Paul doing here? He's doing the same thing Aristotle did, right? Wives, husbands, parents, children, slaves, masters, same thing. Exact same thing. He's having the same conversation that everybody was having in the culture. All the political philosophers were having. But this time, we're going to find out he's talking about the church. We're going to see this in a minute. He's talking about what kind of dynamics should be present in the church. Okay, here's over in Ephesians. He says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm going to repeat that. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the first thing he says. Let's submit to one another. This is, we could call this mutual submission, right? I'm going to submit to you and you submit to me. It's this mutual submission. Unheard of in the ancient world, by the way. So, wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's head of the wife, is Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Talk about a set of verses that has just been tragically misused. Um, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. then I'm going to added a bunch of Paul's theological talk here. It's super important, but it's not relevant to our point today. In verse 28, he says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. That was unheard of. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Too late. Uh, Slaves, obey your earthly masters and masters treat your slaves in the same way. No favoritism. Okay. Brothers and sisters, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Make this point. What Paul has done here, he's taken this ancient household code. It was totally based on the paterfamilias. Monarchy, democracy, aristocracy, all the accepted norms of hierarchy in the pagan Roman empire. He's taken all that. What has he done? He's using a literary form here and he's done something to it. And I don't know if you noticed too, but as he's doing this, he has really brought like reciprocity and mutuality into this whole thing, where there was none before. In the Roman codes, there was none of this mutuality. He addresses uh, the most socially vulnerable first, right? He addresses wives first, children first, slaves first. And then he gives them something to do, which says that they have agency, that they are self-determining, right? Which is a signal to the church that they are to be treated with dignity and honor as full participants in God's household, so don't get caught, don't get too hung up on, on all the words around it. What Paul is doing is he's not he's not overturning ancient household codes because that's not going to happen overnight. There's a long game being played here, okay? Paul is concerned with what? The church. What is Paul always concerned with? The church. Read all of his letters. He's just, his his passion is his, his His excitement, his anxiety, everything seems like it is about the church, right? All of his anguish is directed towards the church, the state of the church, because this is this fledgling community of disciples that are growing like yeast in this pagan Roman empire, throughout the empire. And so he is introducing gospel dynamics that require in the church that everyone be considered fully human. In the church that masters... Oh, you think your slaves are property? Well, guess what? You have a master too, he tells them. And this, my friends, was social disorder for a master and a slave to eat at the common table together. It was like illegal, right? The man, the paterfamilias, did not eat with his wife, he did not eat with his children, he ate together with other men or by himself right it was it was it was a separation and then the church Paul had to even address this because we were kind of like bringing this into the church and he shows up and goes no 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 no! you eat together right men and women sharing a common meal as as equals at the common table for parents and children to share meals together at a common table it was unheard of all of this is lost to us, of course, because it's 2,000 years later and all of this isn't spelled out. But in the old Roman order, those arrows, they just went one way. The role of the wife, the role of the children, the role of, of the slaves and the servants and everything were to bring honor to the paterfamilias. And what Paul has done is open up the taps at both ends. Of the respect and submission and honor and love. He has like turned on the spigot to flow back and forth, right? So now you have mutual honor, mutual submission, mutual love, mutual respect. Because in this portrait of God's ideal society, not the Greco-Roman idea of an ideal city-state, but in God's city, what's the role of the church? What's the role of the church? It's to bring honor to whom? Jesus. Jesus. To God. He, he is the head. He is the head. I, my whole point for, my whole reason for living is to bring honor and glory to the Lord. God, I'm not the paterfamilias of my home. I'm not the paterfamilias of this church. Right? So, I am now free to treat my wife, my children, my fellow Church members, you guys, everybody, with infinite honor and respect. And it's mutually flowing, right? We can, we can mutually love and respect and honor and submit and try to out-kind and out love each other, right? We get to do this now. What Paul is doing really is so revolutionary. And it's easy for us to, to get distracted by all the details. We forget the whole point that he's making. It's why in the passage... In the passage in Ephesians that we were just reading earlier, Paul interrupts himself right in the middle of the whole thing, of the whole household code. It's kind of like he stops and he goes, wait a minute, guys, now, I know this is a profound mystery, but I am really talking about Christ and the church. This is right in the middle of the whole household code stuff. He says, you realize what I'm talking about is Christ and the church, right? Right? And and I know there's loads of religious people that will disagree, um, but this is the text. It says it. And and so it's inappropriate for us to draw conclusions from from Paul's revelation to the church about church dynamics and to dictate to each other how, you know, today's nuclear family should look and operate in America. That's just not what Paul's talking about. It's just not what he's talking about. Uh, He's talking about the church. He's not talking about your marriage. And, and in some religious circles, we get so caught up in husband, wife, who's in charge, who's going to be the boss here. We've missed the huge point that Paul is making about the church and how this right here is where the kingdom shines through. This is what gives the world a glimpse of something different, of God's rule and reign, where nobody is over anybody else. Because it's actually antichrist, as you told me earlier, Mel. That was such a great, it was. It's an antichrist principle for a Christian to rule over another Christian with that kind of authority. That is antichrist. We are all brothers and sisters with one King, one Master. Amen. Amen? In fact, I was reminded. You know, one of our fundamental. Uh, Protestant, at least in the Protestant church, one of our fundamental doctrines, it is one of the things I think that, uh, at least, it it does distinguish us us from our Catholic brothers and sisters. We love our Catholic brothers and sisters. One of the things, though, that does distinguish us is, is the scripture that declares the priesthood of all believers, right? That's a very commonly priesthood of all believers. Men and women, we get equal access to the throne of God, Amen. So ladies, you get equal access to the throne of God. I get equal access to the throne of God. We all get to equally be image bearers of the divine God. We get to worship him with all the sacraments to each one of us, right? Nobody, nobody's left out of that. And you get to wield the authority that Christ purchased for you. You get to wield the authority to, to heal the sick and to cast out devils. Men and women, right? Amen, amen. amen. And that's the role in the ancient days. That was the role of the priest. So, praise the Lord. We're all, today's hierarchy of, of men and women over women, if you go back and study it, it's literally, it literally is the result of the fall. Genesis 1 doesn't begin that way. Genesis 1 begins with men and women all being created and be given, being told you're image bearers. Right? Go throughout the wor- world. Be my imagery. We get to Genesis 3. Oh, man, everybody gets in trouble, and there's this fall. There's this hierarchy. So it's literally a result of the fall. And I read my Bible, and Jesus has redeemed me from the curse. Amen? Amen? So we don't have to live under the curse. The good That's the good news is we get to live uh, out the kingdom instead of the curse. Why do we still want to, like, pretend like there's a curse over us? Amen? And, and, and seriously, this isn't the main point of today's message. You wouldn't believe that. I know but... <laughs> But I, I, this is on my heart because I know some of you—not all of you—but some of you, because I've talked to you, Melissa's talked to you, have really been oppressed by the the wives submit to your husbands thing. And there's a lot more to say there that we'll we'll come back to at another time. But you've been oppressed over that as if that were God's ideal nuclear family plan. But the kingdom is not about your gender. It's not about your chromosomes. Right? The kingdom is about love and mutual submission and partnership and everyone serving in their gifting. You have a divine gift that makes you unique. Whether you're a man or a woman, there's something about you that makes you priceless. And that gift is what you need to be operating in and, and taking the lead in your marriages. Take the lead where it works in one area. Submit where it works in the other area, right? There's some, there's some areas Mel lets me, she lets me take charge, that's so sweet of her. And then, and then the other areas, I'm like, you go because she is she's so much better, right? And that's the way it's supposed to work, husbands and wives, because we're equally submitted to who? Jesus! I don't, you know, so, so nobody needs to be holding up the, the umbrella to keep the Jesus rain off of each other. If you know what I'm talking about, the, that little meme. Ooh. Yeah. So, so we don't need to if we when we proof text one verse to force half the human population to be subservient to the other half. That was the evil that got us in trouble 300 years ago. Amen. We don't need to do it again. Um, th- that it's, and it's not an appropriate exegetical move because Paul is not talking about nuclear family here. He's just not. It's not what he's talking about. He cites these three relationships. The, uh, the, just like ancient philosophers, he's pulling on that to talk about the kind of dynamics that should be up and running in a church. And what are those dynamics? Well, there's submission to each other. We keep mentioning that word. Submission to each other. There's humility. There's service. There's kindness and forgiveness and love Amen. We want to be a forgiving community of forgiven saints and sinners here. I mean, we're just going to be a forgiveness machine and right and unity and respect to each other as fully functional human people, right? Nobody's a partial or potential human. Nobody's invisible in the kingdom of God. And so Paul, he draws out He draws out all of these, he purposefully, all these marginalized, secondary people in Roman culture. And he bestows on them dignity by naming them. He gives them agency. He acknowledges their full participation in the kingdom. Does that make sense? Now, look, you don't have to buy any of this. That's fine. Uh, You know, we always say around here, we walk in unity, not uniformity. You got a different, you got you roll a different way. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and I'm really not trying to step in and disrupt uh, the your vibe at home. That's not my circle of authority. I am I, I am telling you how the relationships in this church should function, though. Amen. Um, I have zero authority over your home and your marriage. None. Make that plain. I got no authority there. Um, But as for this house, I am declaring that we are brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. We have one master. One master. Amen. Let me show one more scripture here. Y'all have been so wonderful and patient. Over in James, he goes on to give another example uh, of the kind of social relationships a church should embody. Slightly different here. Uh, James 1, he says, Believers in their humble circumstances ought to take pride in their... High position, but the rich should take pride in their what? Humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers. The plant, its blossom falls, and the beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even when they go about their business. Now, what's James doing here? It's the same thing that Paul is doing here, but James is kind of focusing on economics. And he's saying, listen, outside of the church... This is just the way the Greco-Roman world worked outside the church. Rich people were considered a favored, honored, of high social status. They were, they were just considered more important than everybody else. And people were threatening to bring that into the church too. You know, they, they had the best seats in the house and ate the best food and all that kind of stuff. And Paul's reminding them, or James here, that the gospel, the gospel brings them low not as a punishment or anything, but to recognize their need for saving, their recognition that all they have is a gift, right? And the practice of generosity and and justice. And so they come into the church community, not as high and mighty and super favored, but they come in boasting of their lowliness. They come in boasting of their gratitude to Jesus for all that they have. And meanwhile, the people that the culture says... Are low, the, those people that don't have any social honor, those people, they come into the church and what happens to them? They're lifted up, right? They're brought honor and dignity. They're declared worthy. And today that would include everyone. That would include sinner, saint, skeptic, seeker, um, doubter, sinner, disabled. Neurologically divergent, all of them, we bring them in, we declare them worthy. And so the church, the high and the low, we relate to as siblings, regardless, regardless of what the outside world declares you to be. The whole movement of the gospel is to eradicate the fault lines of difference that exist outside this space here we want to show the world we want to be a city on a hill the salt and light of the world we want to show the world a different way a different way to be and so we we share a meal together you know as siblings that's what we're doing here we're sharing this meal that's what the gospel does Paul introduces it into the household unit. He introduces it into church, a church that was showing favoritism. The Corinthians were having a rough time, Ephesians, all of them. And he says, friends, you are to put on those practices that exhibit siblingship with each other, and you're to actively resist those practices that reinforce all the fault lines of the culture around you. And and this isn't because, so we're like seen as super nice people. We're not just like all trying to be nicer. That's not the point. It's because the gospel is the good news that God is doing a miracle in the hearts of people, right? Our hearts should be being changed. There is a miracle taking place when you come to the Lord and we're the living proof. The church is the testimony of that. One of the scholars that I told you about, Timothy Gombas, he says this, so beautiful in his writing. He says, Paul lays out a manifesto For a radically new humanity. Giving concrete instruction. Regarding the manner in which the new creation people of God are to conduct relationships. His exhortations confront and subvert the social structures of contemporary society. This new humanity. The church. Is the new creation people of God. Created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And wholly oriented by the self-sacrifice love of Christ. That's what we're here about guys. Amen. So, my friends, <clears throat> when you come to Generations Church and you sit in these seats and we worship together, we worship together as a brothers and sisters, and then what do we do? We take this spirit of unity that we've been sitting in here, we take it out of here. We kind of, we want to infect the world like yeast in the dough. We, we take that unity back to our homes and back to our marriages and back to our friendships In our workplaces, and into your schools. We take it back there. And and that's what you're taking. You're taking the declaration that there are no invisible people in the kingdom of God. There are no second-class citizens. There are no potential humans. You're proclaiming whatever culture defines me as is secondary to my identity in the household of Jesus. Whatever I am out there is secondary to my identity in Christ. So you're representing a, a church that asks who are the overlooked? Who are the marginalized? Who are the powerless? Who are the lonely in our circles? We want to have eyes to see that. and We, we want to center them and honor them and, and welcome them as equals. Who belong. They're, they're image bearers. They're priceless image bearers. Fellow brothers and sisters. Now, do we do this perfectly? No. Right? Because we're not angels. We're just we're just people. So we're gonna mess up. But as we're seeing today, this is what we value. Is what we value is what we repeat and rehearse with each other, right? To spur one another on. And and what you value, what you pay attention to, are the things that, that thrive. We believe that. And so that's what's gonna grow and develop here because God welcomes everybody to the table. And so we wanna be a church who loves each other, who prays for each other, listens to one another. You know, when you're in a home home life groups or you're in a Wednesday night Bible study and you're someone sharing something or an experience they had during the week, we listen, we listen. We don't just rush to answer and judge or something like that. We listen to their joys and their sufferings. Those who have much coming in and offering what they have and those who have very little being accepted and honored and loved, no less than those people who have means. Amen? Amen? Amen. I love you guys. I really do. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I love you guys, and it's such an honor to be a part of of a church like this. This is the kind of church that I would go to if I weren't the pastor here too. I've always thought, like, that's the kind of church that, like, I want to I wanna help, you know, be a part of. I want to be able to say that I would go there anyway if I weren't the pastor. And that's what we are really becoming by the Holy Spirit. I'm so proud. If it's okay to be proud, I'm proud of the Christ-centered people that you guys are and that you inspire me to be more every single day. Amen. Will you pray with me? You Bow your heads. Hallelujah. Father God, Lord, uh, I want to have eyes to see. The people that society overlooks, give give us eyes for that, Lord God. I want to be particularly sensitive to that, Lord. Help us to be the place where the unseen, Lord, become honored guests. May we be a place where the the more different somebody is from us, the more hospitable we become. May, Lord, this be a place where we actively uh, practice humility and generosity and embrace each other as brothers and sisters, as family. God, I thank you, Lord God, that you call us out of whatever status we might inhabit outside these walls. You invite us into partnership and fellowship. Lord God, you've grown us so much. You've challenged us in so many ways, and you continue to do so. You continue to challenge me daily. So we bless your name, oh God. Thank you, Father. For all that you have in store for us. Amen. In the name of the crucified, resurrected Savior, all of the household of God says, amen, amen. Our prayer partners can come forward now. Uh, if there's anything you need before you leave, make sure you allow one of these prayer partners to pray for you. Uh, they would love to pray in faith for you, whatever's going on uh, in your life. And uh, if you Uh, Maybe you've been far from the Lord. You've been far from God for a while. This is a great time to just take that step closer and just say, I'm ready to begin the journey. I'm ready to journey with Jesus. Come forward, let them pray with you. They would love to do that with you today. You may stand to your feet, friends. Let me bless you. May the grace of the Father and the love of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit just be all over you this week until we get to be together again. Love you guys. Grace and peace be with you. Thank you.